in a, a series called Be Rich as we're walking through the book of Ephesians. And so this morning we're going to finish up chapter 2. If you, if you want to turn there, and while you're turning, uh, I'll tell you this, um, we're actually leaving, to, my family leaving to go on vacation tomorrow, and then uh, we're going to the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting, which I've never been to since I've been uh, at True Life, only ever been once, one other time, which is in Birmingham after that. Uh, Preston Ford, well, Preston, he did the baptisms. One of our elders, he's going to continue on as we uh, move into Ephesians chapter 3 next Sunday. He's going to be preaching for us. But uh, like I said, today we're going to talk about uh, the presence of God, uh, talk about the fact that we're God's dwelling place. You know, God's home is ultimately in heaven, although God is omnipresent. He's present uh, everywhere in a sense, but in, in a sense also, so we are God's home away from home. We as individual Christians, we as the church, uh, are his dwelling place. And, and that's important for us to understand because nobody wants to be alone. Nobody wants to be lonely. Is that a true statement? Um, Cheryl Crow, uh, the rock star, said in an interview, I think everybody on the planet feels alone even when they're in the greatest relationships or surrounded by family. In fact, in many ways, when you're with someone you care about, you feel more alone than if you were by yourself. I don't know if I understand that, but that's what she said. She said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life alone. That's the only true fear I have, because what else is there uh, but love? In a 2017 Rolling Stone interview, uh, tech entrepreneur Elon Musk who is one of the few people in the world who has started $4 billion companies, said this in the context of the interview. It was after he got divorced, broke up with his girlfriend after that. And it was talking about having no one with whom to share his luxurious lifestyle. And he said this. He says, being in a big empty house and no footsteps echoing through the hallways, no one ever there, how do you make yourself happy in a situation like that. And then he went on to say, when I was a child, there was one thing I said, I never want to be alone. And then he whispered again, I never want to be alone. Not only do we not want to be alone, not only is that emotionally difficult, it's actually physically harmful to us, research shows. Research shows that, quote, uh, loneliness is linked to cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, and according to some researchers, its effect on mortality is similar to smoking and worse than obesity. One study revealed that it can increase the risk of an early death by as much as 30%. There's also a strong link between isolation and poverty. Having two or more close friends reduces the likelihood of poverty by nearly 20%. So we don't want to be alone. Uh, God didn't design us to, to be alone. He created us for oneness, not aloneness. Now, we can't, <coughs> when it comes to human relationships, always be with other people. We can't guarantee that relationships are always going to work out well. But the good news is that God has not left his children alone. That's what we're going to see in Scripture today. God has not left us Alone. In fact, Warren Wiersbe has written that the people of God are marked by the presence of God. 
I mean, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we're going to survey that in a few minutes, uh, one of the key running themes of the Bible, one of the things that distinguishes us as the people of God is the presence of God in our lives. So, uh, we're back in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. We've been looking at images or pictures of the church. We, we've seen that in the church we're united together as citizens of God's kingdom, that we're united together as members of God's family. Uh, last week we talked uh, about the fact, we looked at this architectural uh, metaphor and how we're uh, the building blocks that God is building his church. We're living stones built on the foundation of the truth of the word of God with Jesus Christ himself uh, being the chief cornerstone. And we talked about conviction and there's things in, in this message today that I think will really build on what we talked about with conviction uh, as we get near the end of the message. But, you know, we talked about with this image of the temple, there's a couple of different aspects of it. Last week, it was this building metaphor, but today, here's the big idea. We're going to see the temple as the dwelling place uh, of God. The, the word for temple here means inner sanctuary. So the, the main idea is that we're united together in the church as the dwelling place of God. So uh, here's what uh, the scripture says. Ephesians 2, uh, 19 says, therefore, now therefore... You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then notice verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So what does it mean to be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit? Well, let me read a couple of quotes, and they'll be on the screen as well, so you can follow along, that I think give a good explanation of this. Uh, John MacArthur has written of this, the term a dwelling carries the idea of a permanent home. So what this is saying is, when you become a Christian, you're the permanent home of God. God permanently dwells in the church. So God in the Spirit makes his earthly sanctuary, his earthly dwelling place in the church where he takes up permanent residence as Lord. This would be a vivid perception for people living amid temples in which pagan deities were believed to dwell. Um. As in the temple uh, to Artemis and Ephesus, but the church is no small physical chamber in which an idol is kept. It is the vast spiritual body of the redeemed wherein resides uh, his, his spirit. Um, Clinton Arnold has written that Paul concludes this section about the nature of the church by affirming that God dwells in their midst. Um, like if you go back to, to, to verse 13 of chapter 2, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once uh, far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this nearness to God that's the theme of this section, uh, Paul describes in the central statement of this passage is now expressed in different terms. Paul says that by union with Christ, redeemed people form a corporate body that is the dwelling place of God. Built together is parallel with fitted together and continues the temple imagery, although in more general terms. 
Believing Jews and Gentiles are together incorporated into the church and form a home for God. Whereas under the old covenant, God filled the literal temple with his presence. Under the new covenant, he fills the corporate body of believers with his presence. Thus, under the new covenant, there's a higher degree of closeness to God that characterizes the daily existence of God's people. So, I mean, think about that. When you read things in the Old Testament about God's glory in the temple or God appearing uh, to people or God coming down and meeting with the high priest, you realize we have a closer uh, degree of closeness, a, a more of a nearness to God than that because God permanently lives within us. The high priest could go and meet with God once a year. We can meet with God anytime. We're indwelled by God. And so, you know, we don't come to church to, to find God. God doesn't dwell in this building. God dwells in us individually. And, and, and this is kind of a mystery. It's kind of hard for me to understand. God's in heaven. God's omnipresent. God's in us. God's in the church. But somehow, uh, together, God indwells us in a special way. And so, when we come to worship corporately, or really just even in our day-to-day -day lives, moment by moment, or if you're uh, you know, trying to spend time with God, God is present with us. You know, we don't have to go looking to find God. He is with us, which is an amazing thing. Like I say, it's, it's hard to understand. I think there's a lot of mystery to this. But, uh, you know, if, if you think about, like, when you've been, say, in a worship service where you just really sense the presence of God. Understand, it's always that way. Sometimes we're just more attuned to it than we are at other times. God is with us. Now, I want to kind of survey something because I think this will help us to understand uh, this better. Uh, you know, if when you read the Bible, there's really one story from beginning to end. It's the story of Jesus. It's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's the, the scarlet thread of redemption running through the Bible. All the Bible is, is, is about him. But there's some other key themes through the Bible. There's Israel and the church. Uh, there's the kingdom of God. There's the glory of God. But one of the other threads that just runs, is just woven through the Bible. Uh, you know, one of the ways that it's kind of something you can hang the whole thing on is this idea of the presence of God. And I, I see in Scripture seven ways that God's presence was manifested uh, down through the ages and recorded in Scripture. Maybe there's more, but there's at least these seven ways. So in, in the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve. Uh, look at what Scripture says, Genesis 3, uh, starting in verse 8. says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And, and, and we take it from this that this was, was not something unusual, but this is the way that God had related to them. Uh, but this is after they had sinned. So it says Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So God had come down to him, was, to them, was present with them, walked with them in a special way. But now they want to hide from God because of sin. Listen, when we hide from God, when we don't want God's presence, when we don't want to experience it, it's because of sin. 
Sin is what keeps us from actually experiencing the presence of God in our lives. But notice the grace of God. God didn't just zap them. He didn't kill them. He didn't destroy them. God called to them. He said, you know, where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And so he's hiding from God because of his sin, but God is still seeking him out. In a lot of ways, that's the story of the Bible. We're hiding, we're running, we're covering ourselves up because of sin, but God is pursuing us to create a people that he can be present with now and forever. That's what the church is. Those who are redeemed and indwelled by the presence of God, that God is walking with. When we talk about this being a personal relationship and a corporate relationship, this is it, marked by the presence of God. Second, God's presence is manifested through the ages through uh, Christophanies. Or you could call them theophanies, uh, but I, I call them Christophanies because I believe anytime God appeared in some kind of visible way in the Bible, it was the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in a pre-incarnate appearance because he is the revelation, manifestation of God who is spirit. Now, there's many examples of this in the Old Testament. God appeared to Moses and, and, and Joshua and uh, Abraham. He appeared to Jacob, and you know we could go on and on. Here's just one example he appears to Moses. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And, and, and the angel of the Lord in this case, this is one of these Christophanies. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So the Lord uh, saw that he turned aside to look. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place, uh, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. God manifested his presence to Moses. He said, man, that'd be awesome if we could see God in that way. But what I'm saying is God's presence is always with us. We're indwelled by uh, the living God. So we have it better than even Moses did. Three, God manifested his presence in the tabernacle. And the, the tabernacle, you know, the, I mean, the word basically means tent. It, it was kind of a, uh, a portable chapel in a sense. Uh, but, you know, with the, uh, you know, there was this kind of big uh, area with the, the, you know, the tent, with the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, all those things in it. And here's what God said to Moses. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so 
you shall make it. And, and he spends several chapters going into great detail about what this tabernacle, how they're supposed to build it and what's supposed to be in it. And it's very detailed. And at the end of Exodus 40, he, 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 he it says this. It says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud, you know, God's presence was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of God would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the, the, the cloud of the Lord uh, was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so in this tabernacle, God manifested his presence. The glory of God was revealed among them. But think about it. Now the glory of God is in us because God is present in us. In a sense, we're the tabernacle now. God is dwelling within us. Then you have God manifesting his presence uh, in the temple. And the temple was kind of like uh, the tabernacle, except it was bigger, more beautiful. It, it, it was a, a permanent place. And uh, in First Kings chapter 8, and Jacob, let's go ahead and skip ahead for time's sake to about verse 10. Uh, you know, the, the first several verses is uh, explaining, uh, you know, kind of laying out what they were putting in there and all these things. But then it says, it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke, the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I've surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. God's presence, God's glory was manifested in the temple. But all of that is just a picture, a precursor, a forerunner of what was to come. And maybe what was to come is not the right way to say it. Maybe who was to come is the right way to say it. Because really all of this is leading up to Jesus. When God himself comes to earth to manifest the presence of God. And look at what John 1.14 says. It says, In the word... Uh, which is talking about Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the, the revelation, the manifestation of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and, and you know what the word dwelt means literally? It means tabernacled among us. God tabernacled. He, he, he gave them a tabernacle. His presence was there. His presence was in the temple, but then he literally came and was present with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead so that we could be saved, so that we could be in a relationship with God. But then he said to his disciples, it's better if I go away so that the helper, the Holy Spirit would come because Jesus was God with us, but now the Spirit has come to be God in us. And so now God indwells believers individually, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, and the church corporately. We're God's dwelling place now. But that's not the end of the story. Because Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 tells us that in heaven forever and ever, 
We're going to dwell with God, and God is going to dwell with us. Notice what it says. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And the word tabernacle here, it's a different form, but it's the same root word as is translated dwelt that we read in John 1.14. God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to tabernacle with God in heaven forever. He's going to dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. The end of the story is that forever and ever, we're going to be dwelling with God as his people in his presence in heaven because of what Jesus came and did for us. So the story begins with God present with walking with his people in the garden that's broken by sin. It's restored by Jesus and going to be experienced by us in a perfect garden once again forever and ever because the Bible perfectly bookends itself because it's one story from beginning to end. So uh, there's the God walking, God pre-incarnate revealing himself, the tabernacle, the temple, Jesus, the church, and then heaven forever and ever. And so This is what it means to live in the presence of God. So when you read those Old Testament passages now about the temple and the tabernacle, or God making these appearances, and you read about the glory of God, think, that's me now, if you're in Christ. That's us as the church. That's us perfectly, permanently, completely, gloriously, forever in heaven. So when the Bible says we're the dwelling place of God, that's what it's talking about. Let's, let's not take that lightly. Let's not take that for granted. Let's not take it lightly. The opportunity that we have to come together to worship in the presence of God as a church. Listen, every Sunday ought to be special because we're in the presence of God. That's what this thing's about at the end of the day. It's not that we're just doing our duty It's not that we've just shown up to hear a sermon or to see our friends. We're coming into the presence of God to worship the King of glory. That's what this is about. And so with that survey, hopefully giving us some better understanding, what I want to close with in our last few minutes together is I want to talk about some implications of this in our lives today. I want this to be practical. I mean, uh, what does it mean if God is really present in us as individual Christians and as the church? And and really, there's a lot of things, a lot of implications of this, a lot of things can be said. But both for time and memory's sake, I decided to boil it down to four. The, The first one is more corporate about the church. The other three is more personal about our individual lives. But, but what does it mean to us? Uh, first of all, it means that the presence of God in the church through the Spirit empowers her to accomplish her mission. The presence of God through the Spirit in the church accomplishes the church to accomplish, empowers the church to accomplish her mission. Now, uh, can you imagine us without the Holy Spirit? I mean, we're pretty messed up with the Holy Spirit. I mean, can you imagine us without the Holy Spirit? I mean, if you think the church has problems, take away the Holy Spirit and think about what the church would be like. Um, 
Now, there's probably a lot of different ways we could talk about it here. I just want to mention three. The Holy Spirit empowers us to witness. Acts 1 that you should receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be witnesses unto me. I mean, do you struggle with sharing your faith? Can you imagine trying that apart from the Holy Spirit? And if you've ever led anybody to Christ, can I just tell you something? It wasn't you. It was the Holy Spirit. I mean, you weren't talking somebody into it. All right? We're not that eloquent. We're not that persuasive. It's a supernatural thing. Uh, Second, 1 Corinthians 12. We're gifted to serve by the Holy Spirit. Placed into the body of Christ. All of us are. So, can you imagine trying to minister apart from the Holy Spirit? You know, um, I've been preaching for almost 30 years now. And I I like preaching, but when I first said I was called to preach in my home church, the little old ladies were like, how's he going to preach? We never heard him talk. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I I was really shy. (laughs) And some of you are like, you know, about 30 minutes into the sermon, like, I wish some of that would come back right now. But, um, I I mean, how do you account for that? That It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, I definitely would not want to try this apart from uh, the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you don't think it's all that great now, imagine it apart from the Holy Spirit. So, you know, there's power to witness. There's gifting to serve. But there's guidance to know the will of God. Um, I mean, do you struggle to know what to do sometimes? I do. Uh, I mean, I'm talking personally. I'm talking in leading a church. I mean, sometimes it feels like God's very clear, and uh, sometimes it feels like educated guesswork at best. Amen, Preston? Um, But I mean, think about that apart from the Holy Spirit. I mean, look at what Acts 13, 1 through 4 uh, says. It says, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Simeon, he was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and and Saul. Uh, You know, this is one of the reasons why we have a plurality of pastors, an elder form of church government. That's one of the verses, there's several, uh, that it's based on. But it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, The Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and so on and so forth. The Holy Spirit is here to guide us, to lead us, to show us the will of God individually and corporately. You know, in in the Old Testament, they were led by the cloud and by the fire. Now we have the Spirit in us to guide us in knowing the will of God. So what's it mean that God's present with us? It means that he's empowering us as the church to accomplish the mission that God has given us. So uh, we don't have excuses because God did not leave us on our own. If you say, I can't witness, God says, I gave you the Holy Spirit. If you say, I can't serve, God says, I gifted you through the Holy Spirit. If you say, I don't know what to do, God says, I gave you my word and my spirit to guide you. So we need to stop making excuses and start obeying. Second, the fact that we have the presence of God dwelling in us, means that we will never face anything in our lives alone 
without God present with us. Isn't that good to know? Hebrews 13, 5, he says, I will never leave you or I will never forsake you. Listen, life stinks sometimes. I mean, let's just be real about it. It's hard. I'd rather life be easy. But you know what? We grow in the hard times, not the easy times. And, you know, I can you know, tell you of some mountaintop experiences I've had with God in the good times. But a lot of times the mountaintop experiences of, with God are when our life, the circumstances of it are really in the valley. And his presence is there to help us and to sustain us and to guide us and to enable us and empower us. Listen, I can't tell you what's going to happen in your life tomorrow or a year from now. I can pretty well guarantee you, you're going to go through some valleys and you're going to have some hard times. But what I can definitely guarantee you is if you're a child of God, you have a Father in heaven who has sent his spirit and he's never going to abandon you and he's never going to let you go through anything alone. That's what it means that God's present with us. But number three, the fact that God is present with us means that we will never face any challenge in our lives that we are not empowered to overcome. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who's in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who's in the world. Listen, whatever it is you're facing, however difficult it is, however much you feel like that you can't handle it, The Holy Spirit is with you to help you and strengthen you and empower you. And the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And if we as we trust Him and and, and rely on Him, He will come through. Even when we don't see how He's going to come through sometimes. You know, people say the Bible says God won't put on you more than you can handle. The Bible does not say that. God will put all kinds of things on you that you can't handle on your own, but nothing that you can't handle in the power of the Spirit. Greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. I've told you before, the hardest thing I ever did in my life is when I preached my brother's funeral, when it came down to it, I didn't think I could do it. And Robin just kept quoting to me, Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And once I took that step of faith, he came through. There's nothing that we're going to face that we're not empowered by the Holy Spirit to overcome. And then fourth, this means that everything in life is in God's presence and for his glory. So there's no distinction between the religious and the non-religious, or the secular and the sacred. Everything in our lives takes place in the face of God or, or in the presence of God. Um, you know, in, in our society today, we have uh, sayings or, or phrases like YOLO, you only live once, right? And it's more than just a little saying. It's a philosophy of life. It's a worldview. You only live once. So, you know, go for it. Get everything you can. Enjoy life as much as you can right now. Or FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. 
What am I missing out on? And, you know, I got to get in on this. I got to do this. Or, uh, you know, sometimes uh, we live in, in, in jealousy of other people's lives because of social media. And understanding that, you know, you're seeing someone's filtered version of life through social media, not the real version of life. But we're like, man, why have they got this going on and I don't? Or, or we're told, you know, you do you. It's your life. You know, live it how you want to live it. Those kind of things. Can I give you another phrase? It's, it's, not, it's not very cool. It, it, it's old. It comes from the reformers back in the 1500s. It's actually Latin, which is definitely not cool. But um, here's the phrase. It's quorum deo. In the face of God. In the presence of God. Listen to this. R.C. Sproul has written this. He says, the big idea of the Christian life is quorum Deo. Quorum Deo captures the essence of the Christian life. This phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. And if God's omnipresent and knows and sees everything, and if God is in us and constantly present with us, we can't ever do anything outside of him that he doesn't see or know about. I mean, we need to get past the lie that we have secrets, that we're getting away with things, that we can live one way here and one way here. That's the opposite of Quorum Deo. Let me read that phrase again. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. He goes on to say, to live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. To live all of life quorum Deo is to live a life of integrity. It is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and consistency and and coherency, sorry, in the majesty of God. A fragmented life is a life of disintegration. It is marked by inconsistency, disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction, and chaos. Listen to this. The Christian who compartmentalizes his or her life into two sections of the religious and the non-religious has failed to grasp the big idea. The big idea is that all of life is religious or none of life is religious. To divide life between the religious and the non-religious is in itself a sacrilege. This means that if a person fulfills his or her vocation as a steelmaker, attorney, or homemaker, quorum Deo, in the face of God, then that person is acting every bit as religiously as a soul-winning evangelist who fulfills his vocation. Integrity is found where men and women live their lives in a pattern of consistency. It is a pattern that functions the same basic way in church and out of church. It is a life that is open before God. It is a life in which all that is done is done as to the Lord. It is a life lived by principle, not expediency. By humility before God, not defiance. It is a life lived under the tutelage of conscience that is held captive by the word of God. In other words, to relate it back to what we were talking about last week, living by conviction. Coram Deo. 
before the face of God. That's the big idea. Next to this idea, our other goals and ambitions become mere trifles. And I would add to that that living in the face of God in his presence is actually what should define all of our other dreams and desires and ambitions. Can I show you this real practically in, in Scripture before we wrap up? Let, let's go to a passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And, and this is one example of what this is talking about. Um, it, it deals with one of the most practical topics there is with the topic of sex. And it, it, Paul writes this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And, and so really what, what he's getting at here with the church in Corinth is they were dividing the spiritual and the physical. They weren't living all of life under the presence of God. They were saying this part of life is spiritual and, and this sex is just physical. And so we can kind of separate the two. But he goes on to say in verse 14, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. You can't separate the bedroom from the church house. You understand what he's saying? He's saying you're one with Christ all the time. And so if you're committing sexual immorality, it's like you're joining the Lord to that person because the Lord is present with you. If you're fornicating, you're committing adultery, God, and you're a Christian, God is with you as you're doing that. If you're watching pornography, Jesus is there with you while you're watching pornography. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And then notice verses 19 and 20. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We belong to him. Jesus paid a price. We're one with him. He lives in us. So because of that, live quorum Deo. Live in the presence of God when it comes to sex. Live that, that for the glory of God. When it comes to how we handle our money, we can't separate that from God because that's in the presence of God too. When it comes to how we do marriage, how we parent, how we take care of ourselves physically, our ethics, our words, our thoughts, our motives, any part of life as a Christian, we're living that in the presence of God. And so understand God knows and sees all, so let's stop believing this lie that we can separate life into the spiritual and the sacred, into the religious and non-religious, that we can come to church and be holy on Sunday and then live our own life uh, the, the, the rest of the week. But understand, all of our life is in the presence of God. So let's repent and surrender to his authority and live for his glory. So, last thing, how do we respond to this? 
The first way is worship. If when you read the Bible, God showed up in the tabernacle, God showed up in the temple, God showed up to somebody as an individual, how did people respond? They either worshiped or they ran. Remember Jonah? The Bible says he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Of course, you can't escape the presence of God. Are you worshiping God or are you running from God? If you're running from the presence of the Lord, if you're not embracing the presence of God, not thankful for the presence of God, it means that there's sin in your life. Listen, when I was running from the call to preach, uh, I didn't want to worship. I didn't want to read the Bible. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want the presence of God because God was talking to me about something that I didn't want anything to do with. I still went to church. So, I mean, you can be in church and not really want the presence of God. Are you, listen, you can't come into the presence of God flippantly, half heartedly. When people really encounter God in the Bible, they fell down before Him. It's a fearsome thing because he's so awesome and he's so great and he's so holy. If we really believe God is present with us all the time, we give ourselves to him as a living sacrifice, as an act of worship. We repent when we don't. Some of you need to stop running from his presence and come back and bow before him and give your life to him and worship him and honor him and experience what he's really designed for you. Some of you need to get saved. You're running from the presence of God because you love your sin instead of loving Jesus. You even say, well, I'm a good person. You love your pride. You, you love your self-righteousness. You need to get saved so you can be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and really experience God. And then, as Christians, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, we need to stop quenching the Spirit. Listen, God is present with us all the time. He's a consuming fire, but by our sin and our neglect and our lack of worship and our lack of spending time with him, it's like we can pour water on that fire. We can't put it out, but we can quench the Spirit. The Spirit's there, but we can live like he's not there. Listen, what a blessing. What grace that God would choose to dwell in and among sinful, silly, foolish, goofy, messed up people like us. Let's not take that for granted. Let's live lives of worship, quorum Deo, honoring him, living in the face and the presence of God, surrender to him, walking in his spirit, living for him, experiencing his goodness, worshiping individually, worshiping corporately, because he's worthy, because he's so glorious, and yet he's so gracious at the same time. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.